Hey ladies and gents, welcome back to Alpha Reviews Podcast, the podcast where me and Frank and Robson go down the alphabet reviewing films as we do. Today, conveniently at B, we do Brokeback Mountain, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you all, because not only did we have Award Watches Eric Anderson as a guest, we had the freaking writer and producer of Brokeback Mountain, Diana Sanna, guest with us. It was more of an opportunity just to interview her. Of course... Her co-writer for many years and her very good friend, Larry McMurty, died very recently and it was her first appearance since his death. So we were extremely grateful to have him and we would we really want to make this episode to honour Larry McMurty and his incredible work. And we sincerely thank Diana for coming on at the time she did. So please be respectful. But, but again, thank you for listening. Please enjoy the episode. And also... Um, I apologise for Franco's mic issues. It only goes on for 15 minutes and I've tried drowning out as much as I can in an audition but it's still not great. I did eventually mention it to him and he did apologise and he was actually really embarrassed about the whole thing but you're just going to have to excuse it for 15 minutes. It's not that bad really but just in case you find it annoying if you just want to skip to the 15 minute mark then it's understandable. Eric, um, I know that mean you both had something to say to Diana. Do you want to go first? Oh, um, I mean, uh, first, I'm, I'm obviously just honored to talk to you, but I just wanted to get, to give you condolences uh, over over Larry last month. And and I just appreciate you being here today. Yeah, I say the oh, same thank thing. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard and to, to do it um, a month, just a month after his unfortunate passing. It really, it means a lot to us. And um, we all, uh, we'll try and be careful of what we say, but we just really appreciate your time. I think I speak for Franco as well. Yeah. yeah, thanks. I uh, um, when it comes to Brokeback, I'm uh, I still feel pretty passionate about it. So this is actually the first uh, anything I've done since Larry passed away. So it's a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you. Um, uh, so just going into Brokeback, so just want to say come we're all the reason why we want to talk to you is that poster behind eric hasn't just been put there for this zoom call he's i wanted to that was already there i promise i promise he's a he's a huge fan and me and frank are also fans but broke out as it's time of release and there's a time you wrote bear in mind you wrote it in 1998 that was quite a brave move of you and larry because Brokeback was almost one of the first, if not the first, film to kind of... We had films with gay people in and gay characters, but Brokeback was one of the first to kind of um, show that any sort of relationship that isn't a heterosexual relationship can just be as pure and romantic and sincere. So I was just wondering, how did you even end up writing Brokeback? Well, uh, you probably know the story of me reading it in The New Yorker. My friend Mark Poirier had, uh, we were all in Texas and Mark and another writer friend, Joe, uh, were working in Larry's bookstore and we were mentoring them as writers. And um, Mark, uh, Mark's room was right across the hall from mine. And he brought me the magazine and he said, there's a story in here, Diana, you ought to read. And that's all he said. He didn't tell me what it was or what it was about. I said, okay, well, you know, and on his recommendation, I, I relied on that, you know. Uh, so I had it on my bedside table and I have a very difficult time sleeping always, um, ever since I was a child. And I picked it up one night when I couldn't read, you know, couldn't sleep. And I, I started reading it. And, um, actually, as I was reading it, I was thinking, this is written so beautifully. This is a beautiful short story. Every word is perfect. Um, and I didn't get to the part where the men are together in the tent. I got about, I don't know, two pages in, and I thought, you know, I've been writing Westerns for, for a couple of years now. I think I, I'm going to put this down. And I lay there, and I thought, I still couldn't go to sleep. So I picked it back up and finished it. And when I got to the scene with the tent, I was just like, <gasps> you know, because what, what I realized, I, I saw the big picture right away what this meant for these two young men in that time and in that place. And I had to find out how the story ended. Uh, so I, I kept reading and I finished and I was weeping and, uh, and I was exhausted at that point. So I fell right to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and uh, I thought, was that just one of those intense middle of the night things that happened? 
you know, how you're awake in the night and everything becomes larger. Uh, so I read it again before I went downstairs. And it was, if not, if, it was even more affecting the second time. And uh, I took it downstairs and I said, Larry, there's a story in here I want you to read. <laughs> he said, what is it? And I said, it's a short story. He said, I don't read short fiction. And I said, why not? And he said, because I can't write it. And I said, well, you're going to read this one. Take the magazine upstairs and read it. I was adamant, you know. So he came back down 20 minutes later and he was quiet, which he's never, he was never quiet. The man always had a comment about something. And uh, I said, well, what do you think? What do you think? And he said, it's one of the best short stories I've ever read in The New Yorker since Flannery O'Connor, he said. Wow. And I said, uh, what do you think about writing a sc screenplay with me? And I'm telling you, you know, this is a man who, who was contrary as could be, the most stubborn person I've ever known. He, I didn't expect him to say yes right away because he'd argued with me about whether the sun had come up. And he said, sure. And I said, okay, we need to write the author a letter and ask her to option it to us. So we sat right down, we, he typed up a letter on his typewriter. We sent it off to Annie, it was a single page. It was, page. It was like a fan letter. And about a week later, we got a letter back that said, um, I don't see a movie here, but have at it. I'll have my people get a hold of your people and we'll just go from there. And um, so that's how it came about, really. So was it just instantly, since you got the letter, you watching it straight away? Was there more of a process yes. with writing it? No, it, it, we, look, you've all read the story, I'm sure. Oh yeah. That's that story. And, and mind you, the version that I read did not have the prologue. There was an italicized prologue that Annie had written a year later, sort of giving you a hint of, of what the story was about. And she sent it to me and Larry, and we, she was concerned that it needed that. And Larry and I both said, it doesn't need that. It doesn't need that. It's better if they go into this not, not expecting something specific because it'll just slam the, up the side of the head. You know, there'll be, it, it'll bring everything such clarity and yet confusion at the same time. Um, but she kept it in there. But mind you, that was not the version we read. So when I read it, I read it cold. I didn't know until I got to the tenth scene that this was a, a story about two young men who'd fallen in love. And there was something about it immediately. I knew it was powerful, and I knew uh, I knew that it could touch people in ways they'd never been touched before about this particular subject. And I felt that it was its power was in its how specific it was. It was specifically about two men who fell in love and their hardship and their challenges and their and and their own homophobia. I just felt because of that. Um, it was very powerful and it was it was like the skeleton of this screenplay was right there so and then larry and i had talked about it one of the things i thought about as i was reading it i kept wondering about the ripple effect of their homophobia the fact that they wouldn't end up together and how that affected all the people around them and the sadness it brought so many people it wasn't just the two of them and, and, you know, thinking about it uh, on some level, you're thinking, well, they should have been together. They should have never gotten married. They should have, should have, should have, should have. But that's not what happened. You can think that till you're blue in the face. And you have to remember the time and the place that this happened. So anyway, that's why the domestic, that's how the domestic part came about. Um, I've, I've got more questions to ask Eric, but if you want to take it from here, I know you're, I know you're keen. No, one one thing I just thought was fascinating because I've I've read interviews with you and 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 watched some and the concept that for for Annie that she couldn't see it as a as a film but obviously you could is is kind of what what speaks to both you and and Larry's ability to to see things on a much larger scale. Um, I mean, when I read it, I it was extremely cinematic to me. But I also read it because I wanted to see 
I had my ideas. I was like, I want to see this. I want to see it on screen. I want to mm -hmm. see it bigger uh, and and turned into something uh, fleshed out and, and narrative. But yeah, the, the story itself was so evocative. And I have to feel that was your your impetus for thinking, okay, this could be something, be something more, because everything was there and 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 you you just brought so much more to it. At the beginning, when you read the descriptions of the young men, they're so they're so perfect in such a short few words and very specific, and you envision them right away. Right away, you'd see them. And of course, I've been a voracious obsessive reader all my life and when I read I imagine the characters I picture them and it's the same with writing and I think Larry always did the same thing when he was writing they these characters were just as real or more so than people in his life and that's how I feel when I'm writing and so Ennis and Jack they became and through the years, they stayed that way, as if they were real people. I knew them inside and out. You know, you can uh, you can make an argument. Well, she's not gay. How would she know? Or she's not a man. You know what? If you're a writer, writer, this is what writers do. They imagine characters, and they have to imagine them in such such a way that they're convinced that I'm convinced. And so for me, it that was not difficult at all. And you know, the I, when people would ask me that, I would say, look at Larry. Larry has written some of the most profound, interesting women in literature. He's a man. How would he know? You know, it's somewhere in his imagination. Because in real life, he's just like any other man. He's just as clueless as the next guy. He's just, <laughs> you know, trying to find his way with women. But in his imagination, yeah, it's yeah, it's all there. Um, the biggest praise I can give Brokeback is that it is so just pure and organic. Things just happen. It's not really the main the main story isn't really told through dialogue. So I was just wondering, was Brokeback kind of like easy to write? Was was the challenges? Was it kind of like straightforward? Did it have multiple routes and where you thought you could take the story? When we started out writing, we wrote, first we wrote the story, just what was there, the scenes that were in the story. And then we took it and we talked about what we wanted to know. And what we wanted to know was about the women. And we wanted to know, I mean, and also when uh, Annie would sometimes write a, a sentence or two about a scene, but it just spoke to us. Uh, for me, one of the perfect examples of that is when um, Ennis sends off the, the postcard, you know, to Jack. And Jack comes flying up in the pickup truck thinking that now they're going to be together. I thought, this has to be a scene. It's a three-page scene. Because it's so it so speaks to how Jack turns after that. He realizes that this is not what's going to happen. And talk about a broken heart. I mean, this just devastates him. So we needed to see that and feel that. It, it was hard to write, just only in the sense that of the emotion involved, you know. Um, but it was never difficult for me. I was excited every morning to get up and get back to it. It took us about three months to write the first draft, and um, and it didn't waver after that. It well, just, so there's it, such a it's such a timeless quality to it and very much to that scene because it doesn't matter if it's 1963 Wyoming or if it's 2021 and smartphones if you are yeah. hoping to be engaged in a relationship and you have this beacon this glimmer of hope you will drop everything and everyone and you will go to it and right. it just that, that is that is never ending. That is the stories of romance like that are are never ending from the beginning of time. It's it's always universal. Well, in, in the one sense, I'll speak to universal here quickly. Um, maybe maybe that's kind of the rationalization that straight people had when they went to see it or men 
are liking it, you know, or are being affected by it. And that's fine. But the fact is, and everybody, you know, they're going to take what they will from a film or a book when they read it or see it that, that from based upon through the lens of their own experiences, right? But the reason this story is so powerful is that it's about these two men who fall in love. It's not Romeo and Romeo, it, it, it's, it's Ennis and Jack. It's so different from that kind of a story. It has very specific aspects. And if it, if it didn't have those, it wouldn't be as affecting as it is. You know, if you, if you think about movies that have affected you or stories that have affected you, it's not the generality of it or the universality of it. It's the emotion, whatever that emotion happens to be. You know, we're, the way I view the world and indulge me is that we're all connected. We are all, whether we like it or not, for good or for bad, as human beings, we are all connected. And these are the kind of stories and the effect that that it had on people, men and women, everyone, straight, gay, whatever, speaks to that. So. Franco, would you like a moment just to make yourself comfortable? It's painful watching you wriggle about there, mate. <laughs> I had to hold in, because you look like you're falling off your chair. And I was like, oh, no, this is not going well. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's okay, it's okay mate. Are you, um, where else is your mic? I think it's rubbing against your shirt, mate. Uh, I'll leave it. Okay, mate. there we go. Sorry. Um, there we go. Um, so in terms of Brokeback, it has really found its audience and the people who love it really sing its praise. But something that's always, since I watched Brokeback and I became such a fan of it and I did my research, something that's always really bothered and upset me is that, like, you know, not only did it lose Best Picture at the Oscars, it's also kind of grown this reputation as the gay cowboy movie. It's become a phrase to say, oh, don't go all broke back on me. And I'm Family Guy parodied it, parodied it briefly in one of their episodes. And I'm just wondering, um, does it kind of bother you that some people are just so narrow minded that they can't see broke back for what it is? No, no. I mean, I... <laughs> Remember when all the jokes started before the, any of the award shows or whatever, and when all the word of mouth was going about? Yes. <clears throat> Larry and I laughed because, first of all, they're not cowboys. They're wannabe cowboys. They're ranch hands. They're sheep herders, you know? Um, but the point is, is that they're rural. They're from the country. They're not your typical uh, television film presented gay men. They're not. They, you know, you wouldn't be able to look at them and know they're gay. It's not, it, it, it wasn't, a, they weren't stereotypes. Let me put it like that. Um, and the joking, it, it really bothered Heath for some reason. He was so, he had taken it so seriously, his role and his acting, it really bothered him. And I told him, honey, I said, don't let it bother you. Just be happy that there's a conversation about it. You know, people that go see it will understand it's not the gay cowboy movie, it is, what it is. Um, it's powerful and affecting and important. And you're a part of that, you know? No, no it never bothered me. In fact, I, I found some of it funny, um, but be, that's just because I knew what it was. I knew what I'd written. I knew what was on the screen and it would, no matter what, it would always be there, you know? The story would always be there, certainly, that Annie wrote. But now the film, it's in the National Registry, so it'll always be there. I'm and really, I think too, oh, even God. even even with the 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 jokes and, and parodies that that came uh, through the season, it gave the film a visibility that it might not have had. I mean, it made eighty million dollars in the United States. That was crazy. That was a huge mm -hmm. huge number, and mm -hmm. it got there by interest and by word of mouth and by actually overcoming all of that instead of succumbing to it. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it was sort of like a, uh, even bad news is good news kind of thing. It was right. all, everybody talked about that entire time of the year. Every time the award season comes back to, every time, this year too, 
there are articles and stories and people talking about how it didn't win best picture. It's the worst best picture winner in the history of the Oscars. It comes back every single year. And what's interesting, um, it actually has it become more famous because it didn't win best picture. That you know? happens a lot. Yeah, and that it was disappointing, of course. For me, it was more disappointing for all the people that worked on it. it, it because the crew, they were so committed and the actors, they worked so hard and they were so determined to do the best job they could do, all of them. And for me, that that was the loss. Yeah, um, am I correct in saying when it lost Best Picture, you weren't as surprised as maybe you were meant to be? No, I wasn't as surprised. <laughs> and I can give you, I can give you an example why. Um, about two weeks before the Oscars, um, Paul Haggis had a, an Oscar nominee party at his home and all the nominees go and, you know, and then other people show up at the party and Clint Eastwood was there um, and Steven Spielberg. I'm a huge fan of Clint Eastwood's films and uh, Unforgiven is one of my favorite films. That's one I use to when I teach screenwriting, I use it as, a, as an example. I use the, the transition and the anti-hero aspects of it. Anyway, um, I said to Paul, I'd really like to meet him. I said, okay. So he started walking me over and he looked at me and he said, Diana, I have to tell you, he hasn't seen the movie. Oh no. When, and you know, at that point, all the votes had been in. It was, you know, that was it. All the voting was over. And it felt like somebody punched me in the stomach. I knew then, I knew then it, it wouldn't win Best Picture. Really? And, and I, I felt, um, and later I was irate because I thought, surely he voted. How could he vote when he didn't see all the movies? That's just, and because I'm, a, I'm fiendish. Larry always called me a completist. He said, "When you you know when you're given a task, Diana, you have you do it all, you know, and then some. And if I'm given the, I watch all the movies. And you know, I was a judge for a film independent a couple of years, and I have to watch. I mean, I'm up at three in the morning trying to get the, all these films watched. You know, 170 movies. Um, but I was angry. I was annoyed. Not so much because I knew it was because he didn't want to see his the archetype that he had." Of a, of a masculine male in that position, right? I, I just thought this is silly and immature. So at that point, I, I pretty much knew, I knew. I think some people who are maybe a fan of Crash, and this isn't, uh, this isn't a, a, a podcast to talk down on Crash, it's, um, you know, some people like it, some people respect it. And I know you, you're friends with Paul Haggis, aren't you? Not really. Paul's oh. had some real issues in the last 10 years or so, right, Eric? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some real issues. For and, sure. Um, I was friendly with Paul all through the awards season um, because we were all clumped together and at the same you know, events and everything. Uh, and I was always very direct with Paul. But no, we weren't particularly friends, no. Oh, fair no. enough. Okay, well, it's just, with the crash is just so the opposite approach of Brokeback Mountain and um, Brokeback Mountain won everywhere and then to win at the Oscars to a film like Crash I it, it's hard to it's hard to not say it wasn't down to homophobia in the voting well of course it was and so <laughs> and, and any <laughs> anybody that says any different is in denial I mean it's so obvious Ernest Borgnine said uh, who was yeah. a fine actor by the way he said if if uh if John Wayne, John Wayne would, if he were alive today, he'd be rolling over in his grave. Well, I thought if he was alive today, he wouldn't be in his grave, but he was trying to say, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like, what? Um, no, you know, you, yeah, there's, there are, um, I know there are people today that have not seen it because it's, it's about two men who fall in love, but that to me, I don't care. It's their loss. It's a it's a profound affecting film, and it affects people who are um, outrageously heterosexual. You know, raging heterosexuals. It affects <laughs> them in spite of themselves, because it's the power of that story. 
That story has immense power. Yeah. I think some people, like you refer to as raging homosexuals, I think whenever they hear Raging that, heterosexuals. Like, raging heterosexuals. I'm so sorry. <laughs> raging heterosexuals. Okay. Um, they kind of almost, as soon as they hear about a film being about two gay lovers, I, I think they almost instantly think that it's going to be a film that tries to like preach to them about like why you should be gay because they have this like very fixed mindset that it can only be one thing. And I think, and especially in Brokeback's case, if it's so sad because Brokeback's so much more than that and it's got so much more to say and it's just, yeah. <laughs> well, that was part of the beauty of it. it. It wasn't a story trying to convince you one way or the other of anything. It was just to tell the most compelling, convincing, a story with convincing characters that it could tell. That was it. Um, and you're gonna come, you're gonna go to it and come away with it what you will. We weren't trying to make a statement or, or anything. We just wanted to tell a great story, a really fine story that would move people. So. I mean, I guess there's two best pictures. There's the Oscars best picture and then there's the best picture. And in terms of the film, that's had the best legacy that people look up to the most and is inspired by the most. Um, I think Brokeback Mountain wins by miles in that in that category. I love, I've had, I have some great stories about people that didn't know what it was going to be about, you know, or had had heard it was the gay cowboy movie and then went to see it, you know, and they're devastated, you know. It's just, but I have great stories like that. Our publicist, for example, um, we were in Toronto and she she said, I have to see your film before I'll agree to represent you, re represent the film. I said, fine. So we went to the theater and we saw the film. And it, on the way we ran into Jake, who's walking down the street and Amanda goes, Jake, I can't wait to see you making out with Heath Ledger. And of course, Jake got beat red. And you know, <laughs> how do you respond to that? So we went to the film and we're sitting there. And I remember about a third of the way into the movie, I feel her, she's already starting to cry. And uh, of course, by the time the movie was over, she was like a puddle. I had to sort of carry her out into the lobby. And she was like, she was like talking to us. Oh my God, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? This is the best picture. This is the best picture. Oh my God. Oh my God, Diana, you know, like that. And then she said, my brother's gay. And, you know, this is so many people. My, my son is gay. Um, uh, I'm gay and I only came out after I saw the film. A whole group of wonderful fans came to uh, Arizona to see me and Larry when we were here one weekend. And they wanted to visit with us and talk to us about the movie. The most surprising thing that they told us was how it had spurred them to have lives. One young man had been living in his basement for 36 years, his mother's basement. He said, I'm in a relationship now. We have an apartment. We're th thrillingly happy. Um, how it made them feel like I can't waste any more time. I have to live my life, whatever that means. And for us, that was that was so fulfilling. I, it made me feel so wonderful. Like it was, it had really meant something. You know, the film had really affected people in a good way. It has a legacy that's that is still still active today. And I'm glad about that. You know, um, when we went on the the tour with the film for Q and A's and everything. Um, I said, I'm ready, bring it on. You ask me whatever you want. And uh, um, the, the, when we went to the Writers Guild and we had a screening there and we had a screening for the LGBTQ folks, there's a, a club, you know, part of the, the Writers Guild, just specifically those writers. And so we had a screening for them and then we had the screening for everybody after that. But it was those people that asked us um, what makes you think there's nobody that's gay on this film? Uh, what makes you think that you can tell this story effectively, right? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, we had uh, gay rodeo cowboys. They were wranglers. They were gay. Um, and two people on the film came out to me while it was being shot. And that's when I said, and by the way, and then I pointed at Larry. And I said, here's the man who's written all these women characters. I said, he knows him in and out in his imagination, but he's just as clueless as the next guy. And of course that broke the ice and that ended that. 
right? So, <laughs> um, Eric, um, this is an interview, Diana, but I just want to ask from your perspective because you've been keeping up with the Oscars for a long, long time, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm much <laughs> older than I'm much older than you, Benji. If that's what you're trying to say, no, yes, absolutely. This uh, this you know, since I was uh, like five years old, you know, and watching with my mom and, and I, I've told this story many times that, you know, getting to the point of, of you know, a gay film, maybe winning Best Picture, my, that was like, here's, here is the convergence of everything like in my life all at the same time happening. Mm -hmm. So, and I had, I had given so much emotional investment into that, not only just because I love the film, but because I just wanted this history moment. I wanted this moment and, and it didn't happen. And it was just like this kind of thing that it really broke me. It broke my, my connection with uh, the Oscars for quite a long time. And, you know, I, I, I took the facade off of what I thought that they were versus what it really was. But ultimately, that kind of just fell by the wayside because, like I said, this is a this is a story that has a legacy uh, that that few films get to have. Uh, its impact is is still there, and you know this was definitely a time still when if you were a straight actor playing a gay character you could get sidelined or blacklisted and that never happened for Jake Gyllenhaal or Heath Ledger. Uh, it was actually great for both of their careers. Mm -hmm. um, and and every, everything since then, I mean, I really look at things as like pre-Brokeback and post-Brokeback when it comes to films and characters and subjects. Uh, and, you know, it's, it'll never not be a watershed moment. And yes, every year, every Oscars, uh, it will inevitably come into play in the conversation. And, and again, that's just because it's, its impact is so lasting. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I was never you know closeted or anything. So it was not like I needed something to help me. But like Diana said, I saw so many people that felt and it allowed them to be more open. This it was, was liberating. Through. Absolutely. Liberating. This was and it still is. It still is. It's still exactly that. It's and you know, it's it, it isn't like homophobia is is gone and cured and uh not a thing anymore. So we still need stories like this. Well, and I mean, look, the, the fact that this is about rural homophobia and Ennis is so consumed with his homophobia. It just practically destroyed him, you know? Yeah. Um, what, a, what, a, what a tragedy. Uh, I've had uh, young people say things to me like, why do the gay people always have to die in the film? And I said, they don't, they don't always have to die. And that's not the point of this movie, you know? And I said, it's important um, for young people today, gay people, straight, to see this because it speaks to the history, the road that, that the gay movement has taken. What a struggle it was. And a lot of that struggle was internal. You know, people not admitting to themselves that this, this was their, their uh, sexual orientation. They were born this way. It's okay. You know, you need to take the next step. Um, so in that regard, for me, you know, you can't really look ahead until you've looked back on history. You know, you can't, unless you're fully informed, you can't go forward, no matter what the subject, and especially a subject like this. I just, um, you know, when I, and I didn't say this at the beginning, but when I read that story, I felt like I'd been struck by lightning. I became like an obsessed person. I, I wanted everybody in the world to read it. And then I went, wait a minute, wait, the best way to do this is a film. That way everybody in the world can see it. You know, if I can get it made into a movie. And once Larry and I finished our first draft, he just handed it off to me. He said, look, this is a great script. It will find its way. And he just kind of left it up to me and said, you know, I'm gonna go write a novel. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's, that's what he did when I was on set. 
He said, I, I'm not going to the set. That's boring as hell. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to stay home and write a novel, you know. But I was, I really was. Uh, I just felt it was so important. And trying to articulate at that point why it was so important, I didn't really, I couldn't really do it. I just knew in my gut that this was something powerful and affecting. And that if people only saw it, you know, they might, they might have a, a shift uh, in terms of the one word that I used to describe the film is compassion. Compassion for people whose lives are not like yours, no matter what the story, like Minari, for example. Yeah. Those people's li lives aren't like a lot of people's, but you, you have compassion for them. You know, and even the movie Parasite, you know, that movie, and, and even Judas and the Black Messiah, which I watched that at, late at night and I got, went to bed so angry. I was so mad. It brought back all these feelings that I'd had in the 60s and 70s about, you know, my indignant compassion, you know, about the civil rights movement and the stuff that was happening. It just brought all those feelings back. But in the next day, I was so thankful for that, to feel all that passion again and to sympathize, to feel, you know, to feel all of that. So, you know, if a, if a film moves you, a book moves you, I, I feel like it's done its job, whatever direction that is. Because you, um, like you were mentioning about how liberating um, Brokeback was for um, gay men around the world, it was also, I mean, I'm personally heterosexual, but when I watch Brokeback, the reason I love Brokeback so much, it's amongst my favorite films, when I watch it, I must feel like liberated, like I watch it and I think, I don't want to live by the standard quo of like being a man and all toxic masculine. I just want to, I just want to be myself. And Brokeback really does just kind of, um, I don't know if you've been told this before, but it can resonate with basically anybody for that reason. Mm -hmm. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah, I think it's powerful. And, and uh, I've had friends tell me um, occasionally, they go, Diana, look what you've done. Look what you've done. I said, well, you know, uh, all I did was write it and produce it. I didn't, I didn't, the film does it. It just, you know, it's like writing a, a short story or a novel. Once it's completed, you know, you have this kind of sag, you're sad that you're leaving your characters, they're leaving your life. Um, but then you realize that it's, it's its own thing and it's, it's its own business, it has its own business in the world. It's not, it doesn't belong to you anymore. You know, that film belongs to the world now. And I'm perfectly happy with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I know, I'm really intense. I get no. told that all the time. But <laughs> no, that's very, very, it's just very, all very meaningful. In a good way, it's all very meaningful and sentimental. Um, so just kind of going back to Brokeback within a film as itself um obviously as you mentioned you produced it um was that always the plan or did you just kind of find yourself there at some point no both Larry and I thought we would produce produce it but when it came down to um making the deal with the studio that was a long drawn out affair um mm -hmm. they didn't want me as a producer uh they said and I, it was like I had to audition to be the producer and here I'd lived with this thing for eight years I'd been pushing it up this mountain up <laughs> I've been climbing Brokeback Mountain for eight years <laughs> and uh I had to audition which fine okay let me tell you what I've done you know I have um I have 35 hours of on-set film experience you know uh, as a producer and I, you know, I don't know, you can talk to my crews that have worked with me. They love me. They're always wanting to work with me again. I still hear from them. Um, and I've lived with this story. I know these characters inside and out. I could recite the script to you by, by heart, you know? And um, what it finally came down to was Larry said, we were on the phone and they said, well, if we don't have so-and-so be a producer, it won't get made. And Larry said, fine. And he went, click, hung up oh. the phone. And uh, um, three days later, they were calling our attorneys trying to make the deal again. And it was, you know, one of 
our lawyers that you know demanded that I be a producer and not just a producer, but the first position producer. So I would I have my lawyer to thank for that. But it was <laughs> it it was uh, the the filming was a real exercise in um, uh, I guess misogyny really. You know they they I was the the. I was the only, other than the production designer, I was the only above, above the line woman. And I got ignored mostly. And just kind of like this, except for the actors. The actors came to me all the time. I didn't go to them. Uh, Aang's notorious for not talking to the actors once he starts filming. And so, you know, they didn't know if they were doing a good job, a bad job, an indifferent job. And uh, Heath especially needed a lot of uh, reassurance and so he would talk to me about, you know, his his scenes and the character. And Jake would do the same thing. Jake, they were very different as actors. Jake will make it different every time. Every every take, he'll try it a little different. Uh, he might switch up the dialogue, um, which aggravated Heath to no end. He stuck clearly to the script um, and he wanted it to stay that way. Um, but Heath never wavered. Once that camera, the first time it rolled, he became Ennis. And every time it, action, he became Ennis. He was always Ennis. He was always the same. It, he didn't falter. He didn't waver. But when, when Aang yelled cut, he became his cheerful, joyful, childlike person again, except once. And that was the shirt scene when he finds the shirts in the closet. We shot day for night there. I mean, it was night for day. You know, we shot in, at nighttime. It was supposed to be daytime. A lot of lights everywhere. And uh, um, he was upstairs and I was downstairs with the monitor. And he did the first take. And of course he was, it just, you know, ripped him up. And uh, he came downstairs and he said, how did I do? How did I do? And one of the other, uh, the exec producers was there, Michael Costa, we, he was telling me something. And somehow he construed this, that maybe he wasn't doing it the best he could do or something. He went running out of the house into the dark. And I was like, oh my God. And he was, you could tell he was just overwhelmed. And I ran after him and I said, um, are you okay, Heath? He said, it's, I just need to be alone. I just need to be alone. So he was gone for 30 minutes. It was pitch, it's like midnight, you know, and we're all wondering if he's going to be okay. And he came back and he did another couple of takes and got through it. But it was like he had to get a grip on himself. He was so overwhelmed emotionally by that scene. Because that scene, it's, all, it's like the anti-climax. It's the, it's the scene where the character realizes what he's lost. It's when Ennis knows that, I mean, he knows that he loved Jack. He knew that, that was clear to him. But when he finds those shirts and his shirt is inside Jack's, he realizes how much he was loved. I'm gonna cry. Yeah, and what, okay. he, and what, and what he'd lost and that overwhelmed him as the amazing young man that he was. But he came back and pulled himself together and did a couple of takes. And he did, I mean, if you look at that scene, it just rips your heart out. It's an incredibly sentimental scene. Oh, the thing is, Ben, it's not sentimental. It's hard and it's unsentimental and it's realistic and it's pain. It's full of sentiment, but it's not sentimental. Okay. Yeah, I understand that. So it's obvious to me by you talking about Heath and Jake that they were both incredibly passionate about Brokeback, but am I correct in saying it was a real pain to get? Um, I believe what Heath Ledger, wasn't it, in particular, was really hard to get hold of for the film? Well, um, we suggested Heath early on and they thought he wasn't macho enough. What is that? Where did that come from? I, I think it was just some excuse to not use him. And uh, when it came down to it, um, 
the other actor who'd committed, and that was in August, I think, uh, before we sh start shooting the next spring. Um, you know, I had a gut feeling that he was going to back out. I, I just felt it, and 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 I thought because a lot of actors had had committed and backed out of that particular role, the Ennis role. It was easy to get Jack. I'm not. I wasn't sure what the problem was. Larry said he thinks a lot of the actors' uh, representatives were dissuading them because they felt it would mark them, you know, for life. And uh, I just kept saying, a smart actor is going to come along. A smart actor, he's going to see the value in this role, and he will jump right on board. Well, in December, uh, I got a call from the studio head who said the other actor had backed out. And, but don't tell anybody because I don't want people to think, uh, you know, he refused uh, Aang or he rejected Aang. And I was like, what? That doesn't even make sense. So as soon as that happened, I got on the phone with Keith Sage and I called him, I hung up and I went, oh. And I said, can you get the script to him? And he said, yes, because he'd read it. And so he got him the script and he and Naomi Watts read it um, on the airplane on the way home. Uh, to Australia, she read it first, and he told me when he on set. He said, "You know, after Naomi read it, she was jumping up and down on the bed, telling me all the reasons I had to do this movie." And uh, so I read the script, and he said, "I would have rowed a boat halfway around the world to see Aang, to be in this film." So he understood it immediately. He understood how powerful it was, and what it meant. He was, you know, he was so grateful and thankful. He told me it was the most beautiful script he'd ever read in his life. You know, and of course I, that makes, that made me feel wonderful. I thought he gets it. He's got passion. And that's what it takes, I think, you know? It, and empathy. I think the thing that is the strongest element and why, you know, you can say you're a woman, you're not a gay man, how can you write this? you have empathy and you understand that that is the the core of of an audience being able to to understand uh, a character is is if, if they right. have empathy as well well like i said at the beginning we're all connected yeah. i don't care what you say or if, whether you like it or not you know <laughs> we're all i believe that we're all connected you know and and um I'm not judgmental, let me put it like that. I'm not even judgmental in real life. I, I uh, try to look at the big picture when I meet someone. I want to, you know, I, everything about them. Uh, I, I try very hard to not take a lot personally because you never know where someone's coming from, what they've experienced. I, I just don't. One of the um, best compliments I felt I could give Larry, I listened to a podcast that Larry and I had done in 1994. They turned an interview we did into a podcast and it was this podcast. And I listened to it shortly after he passed away. And um, they asked Larry if he could describe his work with one word and he said, imagination. And I said, non-judgmental. He never condescended to his characters in any of his books. You know, not the bar waitress, not the guy that ran his car, truck drunk through the wall of the honky tonk. He, you know, he loved them all. Um, I feel that that story, the power of that story too, is it's not judging. That's what I mean about it not preaching. It's not judging those characters. It's presenting them in all their rawness and flaws. And you feel for them. And even in spite of yourself. You can't help it if you have any humanity about you, anybody with a heart. So when when so is it fair to say then that you and Larry not only did you think that an amazing screenplay could be made out of Brokeback Mountains and did you almost feel or a personal responsibility to get it out there because you know how powerful it could be for people? I did. Larry didn't. <laughs> you know, he just was like, "Okay, we'll do this," and I'm moving on. Um, <laughs> And he just said, Diana, it's a beautiful script. It will find its way. And he said to somebody uh, describing me once, he said, Diana is eccentric in her relentlessness. 
He said, I know that because I've lived with her for 20 years. I know, you know, I, this was like 20 years ago. He said, that's how she is. She's eccentric in how relentless she is. And I was relentless about getting that film made. Larry strikes me from talking about him, obviously I never knew him, but he strikes me as very kind of straightforward and professional, but then you almost have the emotional side of it. So you kind of compliment each other well. Yeah, we've complimented each other really well. Um, we, uh, when people describe us as our representative just told me this uh, yesterday, he said, Diana, people ask me all the time about yours and Larry's relationship. He said, you know, it's hard to explain. They're, they're best friends, but they're like siblings. They love each other so deeply and they're so loyal to one another and committed to one another in every way, you know? Um, we would, when we were, especially when we did a book tours, we would finish each other's sentences, even in meetings, professional meetings. And so, you know, it was clear we were sort of on the same page about most everything. Although when we disagreed, we disagreed passionately, you know? Um, and we didn't make any bones about it. We do it in front of people or whatever, but we would always come around. There was never any animus or, or bad feelings between us about anything, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure how or why that happened, but we were, I feel very fortunate to have had him in my life. And he said the same thing to me just, you know, before he became ill. Oh, bless him. So, um, uh, sorry, I don't even know what to take it. Um, Eric, I, it's okay, it's all right. Eric, do you have anything to say? Um, <laughs> no, this this has been this has been pretty wonderful to just to listen to you, Diana, and 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 these stories. These are things that you know I've read and and heard about, but it's always so nice to to have that direct uh, first person uh, experience and, and, and conversation about it. So I'm, I'm just, I'm honored that you're, that you're here talking to us about, you know, something that came out 15 years ago, but it's, you know, here we are, we're here and for multiple generations too. Ben is a different generation than, than I am and, and you from me. So it, it speaks so much to, the, the the reach and the impact i think anyone with an open mind can watch broke back and really appreciate it for what it is i don't I think, think it's... you can watch it with a closed mind and have it open your mind that's, right and and true. that that to me um i loved giving the screenplay to, to friends of mine who had no idea what it was about <laughs> and then get their reaction afterwards i loved it because it just confirmed that what i was doing was important and meaningful, you know? Uh, I had a good friend who was in the military. Eric, you may have heard this story. Um, he's a very good friend, a very smart guy. Um, and he wanted to read us the script, one of my scripts. So I gave him that one. I didn't tell him what it was about. And he came back to me and he said, Diana, I, he said, I, he said that's, that's a really good script. He said, but I have to tell you something. He said, I learned a lot from that script. He said, I said, like what? And he said, well, I, I didn't realize that gay people feel the same way that we do. Uh, and that startled me. He didn't realize that when gay people were in love, their love feels like love, the way that love is supposed to feel. He didn't, he never knew that. And that just gave, did him a 180. But, you know it, it to me that's that's that was and i was like yes that's the thing that can break the phobias and the isms down is when you can finally see the person as just a human being where you have human being before human being that's important that's why i say we're all connected we're human yeah. beings we're all connected yeah. You know, you, because when you meet someone I mean, right away, you, you the first thing you say, well, uh, it's a man or a woman and they're a human being. And then you begin to learn more about them, you know, but first and foremost, they're human. I just, I wish, because I think any, I, I genuinely do believe that most people, even like Eric said, even if they're coming from it from a closed mind, if they're forced to watch for whatever reason, I feel like it really can open their mind and I wish 
not just with Brokeback, but any film like Brokeback that has come out since, like Moonlight, for example, I wish more people would kind of give it a chance and allow it to open their mind. Um, because as an example, it happened really recently to me and Franco. I, would, I won't say names because I don't want to get anyone into trouble or us into trouble, but an adult figure in our lifetimes, I told them that we were we were meeting you and he just like laughed and was like, oh, I don't know what to say to that. And it's like, you just don't get it, do you? <laughs> that's you know and that's I have no I'm not offended or anything because again it's their loss it's not my yeah. loss I feel lucky I was lucky to come on that story I was luck so fortunate to have something like that come into my life and be have the the privilege of pursuing that you know that Annie let us do that we optioned it with our own money. It, we paid $10,000 to get the option, you know, and we ran with it. You know, that was a real spec script. That was, nobody paid us to write that. You know, we had to pay to write it. So, you know, in that regard, it was a big risk too, you know? And yeah. as far as people, I'm so honored that anybody sees the film by any of you having seen the film. Um, I feel honored by that. And thank you. Um, as for, I love the fact that it caused a lot of people to ask questions, to raise questions in their mind. When I go to the movies, I want to see a, a story maybe I don't know anything about. I want to learn sometimes from film. Uh, what is the point otherwise? You know, you can be entertained with something, you know, light and frivolous. That's great. And I am too. But I want to learn. I mean, even a movie like Minari or Parasite or Judas and the Black Messiah, young people don't know those stories. That film was done so well and so effectively. The acting was spot on. That script was excellent. The cinematography, it gave me the same feelings I had all those years ago. So in my mind, I felt like it was great. It was a great movie. And so many people could learn from it. And I think that's the biggest reward Brokeback has. It um, uh, it really has had that effect. People still ask questions from it. People still watch it, and people still learn from it. And I'm yeah. I'm happy that people were disturbed after they saw it, because <laughs> it for, it forced them, in spite of themselves, to look at things that they hadn't really looked at in any depth. I just I'm I'm glad about that. I'm happy about that. I'm I'm fine arguing with people about it. You know, I'm just, they can't offend me because I feel like so much of what they say and, 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 and express about it says so much about who they are. Diana, we're really grateful for your time. We are coming up to the one hour mark. But, yes, um, I see. I'm looking at the, and, the uh, clock and my little dog is out there. I can hear him scratching. One of them scratching at the door. Oh, yeah, my cat's scratching at the door. <laughs> you have good cats, don't you, Eric? They come bring you. Yes. Normally they're in here with me, but I, I just, I pick them out. <laughs> we just want to, we just want to also just quickly congratulate you and we would, Larry is not with us anymore, but um, congratulate you on good Joe Bell as well. Oh yeah. That's yeah. an achievement. That was a, that was difficult. Four years of, of agony too. And just quickly, I'll tell you, we got four minutes. Um, once we wrote the script and we wrote it for Kerry Fukunaga, Yes. Yeah. It, what, what you'll see in the film, they might not like me saying this, but we had no involvement with the director or the casting or anything. It just languished for four years. So what you see is not, you know, I, I, it's changed. It's changed pretty radically from the, from the script. Um, there's so much more of Joe in there than Jaden, which disappointed us because it, it's because of Jaden's story that Joe, what, what happens to Joe? You know, it, it's, if you see that, you, you, you'll come to understand a lot. And it was, a, a lot of our intention was to honor Jaden and his life and his death. And ultimately yeah. Joe's too, but Jaden yeah. was the focus when we, when we wrote the script. 
I don't know. I know it's had a release, um, not theatrically, but with um, festivals, unfortunately, um, just due to being in the UK and restriction, I've not been able to get an opportunity. But um, let me tell you something, I am super excited to see it um, nonetheless, just to, just to see another feature film that you and Larry have written, because um, if Brokeback's anything to go by, I think you two are just some of the, just one of the best writing pairings I've ever seen. Oh, I appreciate, I really appreciate, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think it's, again, because we, we're not judgmental. We never could be. It's, you know, we're all human yeah. when it comes right down to it. Well, Diana, we thank you so much and we'll, we'll let you loose and we'll let your, let, we'll let your dogs thanks, come say hello. Thank you, Ben, for your interest. And uh, yeah, and thanks, Eric. It's nice to see you. <laughs> yes, thank you so much, Diana. And with that, ladies and gents, that rounds out our episode on Brokeback Mountain. Again, thank you so much for listening. Join us next time where we'll be doing, let's just say, Brokeback's Big Evil Rival. <laughs>